This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. The grad student that wrote it will eventually leave the lab. And Thankfully. So the lab... <laughs> that is the dream, at least. <laughs> Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we learn about a new career path for scientists who'd like to code. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 172. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Josh, what's happening? Not much, Dan. Uh, you know, our ethanol this week, funny story about that. Uh, I picked up this uh, Irish-style beer that we could have in celebration of St. Patrick's Day, but I think we're about two weeks too late. We're doing great, Josh. Yeah, after I messed up that episode a couple of episodes ago, then we got we were too late for our winter beer. Uh, it was already spring, and now we're too late for our St. Patrick's Day beer. So... I assume we'll be, uh, I don't know, by, by the time summer rolls around, it'll just level itself out, hopefully. Dan, did I ever tell you my little memory trick for remembering when St. Patrick's Day is? Uh, no, you didn't. I didn't know you would need a memory trick for remembering that. Well, I'm not good at remembering dates, especially uh, St. Patrick's Day. But why do you need to remember St. Patrick's Day is my question. What is going on in your life that that is an important event for you? So... For a number of years, I taught GRE prep uh, to students, and a big part of that was teaching uh, teaching math. And one of the things we learned were square roots. And sometimes on, on the test, there's certain square roots you would need to know the actual number uh, of what that square root would be. And so, for example, uh, the square root of 2 is 1.4, which you can remember because Valentine's Day is February 14th, 214. Oh, nice. The square root of 3 is 1.7, which helps you remember St. Patrick's Day, 317. So I don't know why that always stuck in my head. And I think what's supposed to do is you're supposed to use that as a memory trick to remember what the square root of 2 and the square root of 3 are. But I could never remember when St. Patrick's Day. So now knowing the square root of three helps me remember every year when St. Patrick's Day is celebrated. (laughs) Come for the beer review. Stay for the GRE (laughs) prep. I love it. All right. So speaking of which, Dan, uh, we are drinking the original Wexford Irish style cream ale. And this is a nitro beer. They say it's best served chilled, brewed by Green King in Suffolk, England. I I was thrown for a loop, Josh. As I poured this, I was shocked. The it said nitro, it said Irish. I expected yep. a Guinness looking beer. That was not what I poured. No, not at all. This is definitely an amber, in amber at least in color. And I would say, as far as nitros go, usually you get that creamy foam. I was a little disappointed. I poured mine to a glass in the amount of foam on top as well. Not a ton of foam, but I I do. Like, this is a beer that I notice the texture on. Normally, I don't notice the texture of a beer, and probably I should. This one is creamy. It is a, it is like a smooth, um, I don't know whether it's the smaller bubbles or what it is, but it has a mouthfeel that's different than other beers we drink. 
That's true. Yeah, I wonder if this one has the lactose in it. I don't see that, so maybe maybe it's just the nitro. Uh, what do you think of the taste of this one, Dan? I like it all right. Um, it's an amber, and it's a little bit maybe hoppier than I would have expected, but you made a bit of a face when you first tasted it, so I'm curious your take. Yeah, I don't like this. I don't like this one. Uh, there's a bitterness to it for me that does not come across as a hoppy bitterness, but more of a uh, medicinal bitterness. Uh, is it the same as when you when you drink a Guinness? A Guinness has a bitterness that is not exactly a hoppy bitterness either. I mean, it could be the same. I, I'm not a huge Guinness person, but I like Guinness more than I like this. And I'm not there with you. I can't finish yours. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> yeah, I do. There might be some leftover. I might see if my wife or children will finish this one. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. I do not condone children drinking. Yeah, I don't know, Dan. It almost makes me wonder. I know, I know you like this more than I do. We used to do this science experiment for high school kids or, or younger kids where you would taste these these strips of paper impregnated with PTC, uh, this chemical, this non-toxic chemical that depending on your genetics, you either don't taste it at all, you taste it a little bit, or you taste this super bitter uh, flavor. And so maybe there's something in here that you're not tasting that for me, this is just a very strong bitter, you know, almost like if you try to swallow a pill and it dissolves on your tongue, and it's disgustingly bitter. That's what like I'm getting from this The taste of Tylenol uncoated. Exactly. So, I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm also fascinated by the theme of child endangerment that you're, you're bringing up. You're giving the kids beer. You're making high school students <laughs> taste strips of paper impregnated with chemicals. We're doing great so far, Josh. We're doing great. Well, anyway, Dan, uh, happy belated St. Patrick's Day to you and anyone else out there who celebrates. <laughs> and uh, who knows, maybe next week we'll have a nice Valentine's Day theme beer or Groundhog's Day or something. We'll see what we have in store. <laughs> we'll find something. All right, Josh. Well, I would like to take the chance to thank Promega. They have a student resource center that is newly redesigned, and it has a collection of resources on molecular biology techniques resources on wellness and career development during graduate school. And in this new design, Josh, if you look around very closely, you will see a cartoon drawing of you and I, you and me, whatever the correct formulation there is. Uh, So we have a Hello PhD link on that page, and it's us as cartoons, which I think is pretty appropriate. I've always wanted to be a cartoon. You can go to promega.com slash hello students to check it out. All right, Dan, let's get on to our topic of the week. All right, Dan, this is a good segue from our beer segment into our interview segment because you're talking to Nicole Brewer. Get it? Like, oh, wow. Beer? Uh-huh. Did uh-huh. not make the link until you said it. Yep. Tell us about Nicole, Dan. Yeah, so Nicole reached out and told me about uh, a career path for that is science adjacent, that is related to academia that I had never heard of. And it turns out I'd never heard of it because the designation is really about 10 years old. And it's starting to make inroads in universities and industry, but I think it's it's still a career that is being defined as it's rolling out. And so I wanted to talk to Nicole about it. It's called a research software engineer. So take a listen. Today, I am joined by Nicole Brewer. Nicole, welcome to Hello PhD. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Daniel. I'm happy to be here. And why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background? I am a full-time software engineer. I'm staff at Purdue University, and 
I am what I would call a research software engineer, although my title is software engineer. And I work for a group of research software engineers. And so what that means is that I work for a research group and we as a group work with other labs on campus that need services and software, whether that's us writing some sort of application for them or helping them convert their code from, you know, MATLAB to Python or helping them get their code on a supercomputer, which is basically a whole bunch of computers strung together that makes the compute time go down, which is important and maybe familiar to people in engineering or certain kinds of sciences that, that use a lot of compute power. This might so, be similar to people who have experience with core facilities, like a microscopy core facility or a mass spec core facility, where you don't have to have the expertise in your lab to do these sorts of technical functions. You can work with the core facility to get help. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. Absolutely. And so, yes, we are a service and, and we work pretty hard to reach out to the university because not a, a lot of the professors know that we exist. So a part of our function is to do outreach to make sure that all of these labs that need software, which is a very large amount, it's been quoted at 94% of all research uses research software, that they're able to get the help that they need through us. And even though it's so widely needed, it's not very well known yet. And, and so we do a, a lot of outreach to pull those people in. And are these biological research labs or chemistry or physics or everything? Or, or the humanities? We've recently done an interview with a humanities student and we found out they might need software too. So who do you work with? Absolutely. Everyone. <laughs> we work with everyone. Everyone needs software, right? We work with an economics group. We work with a bioinformatics group and psychology and engineering, the whole gambit. Well, I'm going to want to ask you more about that particular career path because I think it's interesting. But let's take uh, a half a step back. Can you tell us the, the types of software that labs or researchers are developing? Just maybe an example or two of the type of software. You know, said 94% of research includes research software, but how, how will people have interacted with that who work in the lab? Yeah, so I have worked on a statistical psychology lab, and they're writing code to make power analysis more accessible to researchers so that they can better design their research studies. Right. So it's basically a whole bunch of calculator functions, but, you know, it's a lot of complex code on the back end. And then it was my job to cover that code in a user interface to make it accessible to other researchers who might not have that same background and would benefit from also using the software. I see. That makes sense. So, so a, lot of, a lot of it is based on statistics that the labs are collecting or data that they're collecting and maybe processing that into something useful. And that's got to be growing, right? We're, we're collecting so much more data into the terabytes and petabytes that we're not maybe uh, as obvious or as available 15, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Research is based so much in data now. And, you know, there, I, I would break it down into two things. There's computational pieces, 
where we're doing something like simulations. Like if you're in aerospace, you might do some sort of simulation of dynamics for an airplane or something. Or there's what you're saying, like the data analysis piece. And we see both. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So in a world where, where your role didn't exist, because we're going to talk about what a research software engineer does, but in the in the typical world where maybe they don't have a person dedicated to doing what you do, what does that life cycle of a piece of software looks like? Say I'm in the lab, I've got a bunch of data, and maybe I have the the savvy or the ability to put something together, maybe a Python script. Can you talk a little bit about that that software life cycle and and maybe some of the gaps that that leaves? Yeah, absolutely. So we often see grad students working on code, maybe just one, and perhaps it's not super well documented. Surprise, surprise. It may it may be that it's not even in a like a Git repository, right? Th- things that from the software perspective seem like sort of obvious are absolutely not, there's not a lot of formal training or any at all for students in labs that are, they're not software people, they're, you know, graduate researchers that are doing all this coding. So that almost, you know, begs the training of the people that are doing the coding, right? This should be an important aspect, but currently because that training isn't enforced, the role of the research software engineer is in part to come in and do some of that coding for them, but also to just be a part of the education for grad students. So I I worked very closely with a grad student and we would teach each other things, right? She was doing amazing stuff, but I would come with come in with standards, you know, that are I have a trained background in and just suggest, oh, this is the standard, like run away with it. And she would she would go implement it since I was working on something else. So it's a very symbiotic relationship. That's cool. Um, yeah, there are cultures and practices in software development, and there are cultures and practices in research labs. And what you're saying, I think, is the two can learn from each other. I think one of the pieces that you don't learn in graduate school in your biology course is what you and you said a Git repository. There's a, a way to store code that both shares it and keeps it. If somebody else wants to alter it, you can see those changes as they progress. So, like that's a core thing that you wouldn't be exposed to in a biology class because it's just not part of the culture of, of research. Right. And so what we'll often see, going back to your original question, is that this code, even if it does its job really well, the grad student that wrote it will eventually leave the lab. And Thankfully. So the lab... <laughs> that is the dream, at least. <laughs> right. But this leaves the software in a bit of a pickle because it suddenly has no maintainer and there haven't been a whole bunch of considerations put in place to avoid this bad handoff where everything just falls through. So, yeah, between education and training or having a research software engineer working with the lab, these are uh, hopefully two solutions to that problem. How reusable is that software? I'm thinking to myself, if I publish a paper, I, I've analyzed my data using software that I wrote. Does anybody look at that code to say, okay, the code performed the way you would expect it and the results are accurate? And if I want a copy of it to analyze my own data, maybe I'm in a lab that researches something similar, can I get it? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it definitely depends on the domain, how used, 
how used to these things that we are. There's certainly, I've heard of lots of people emailing the the per person that wrote the paper, like, so can I have this data, please? Like, it's not available anywhere. Or, you know, the software that I use to clean this data or get this data is unavailable, which makes the data set you're not reproducible, even if it is available. And, you know, this is often cited as like a tenet of science, right? Our, our work needs to be reproducible. And it's a hot topic in my field and actually something that I'm probably going to research for my own PhD. So. Oh, awesome. Okay, so so enter the, the research software engineer. And I think you've highlighted a few of the ways that an external person, a person who is trained in the, the culture and practices of software can improve this. But but be explicit. What are what are some of the things that you do to improve the code and to make it usable and shareable? Right. So one of the things that the, my passion project is writing user interfaces for software so that other people that can't code can still use the software and get something uh, good out of it. A lot of the times this means um, just covering data management, right? So for, so for we've had in our group, we have this economics group and they have this set of data that they need to make publicly available and they want it to be accessible through platforms, not like GitHub that are so specific to the software side of things. So we want to make a little web widget that makes it easy to select the data, maybe do some filtering on it, and then download that. So that improves the reproducibility of, of your data and the accessibility of it. That's huge. Uh, to, to make that data searchable by other groups. I mean, this is the, the point of science, right? I discover something and I make it available so that other people can build on top of it. And when it's not accessible or it's only accessible in places that other scientists can't find or can't use, then it kind of dies, right? Its usefulness ends there. So that's making it accessible is a huge... Yeah, and not only does it, it die because it's not accessible, uh, a lot of the time it will die because it just lacks funding. And we have seen the NSF sort of uh, get behind a few funding proposals now supporting open software projects and trying to fund that maintainability of these reposit code repositories into the future. So it is looking up, and it's definitely a developing field. And the funding is, is even further behind the career, which is also pretty nascent. But we're definitely moving in the right direction. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. So the this research software engineer, the RSE, I think I'll try to <laughs> shorten it to that from now on, if I can remember to. It, it's kind of a, a guide, a Sherpa, a, a helper, a trainer. It's all of these things to bring software quality to the research space. But it's a pretty new designation, isn't it? It's not something that's been around for a long time. Yeah, so the research software engineering movement started in the UK and some people got together and noticed that this was a position that was cropping up a lot in academia and that it didn't really have any sort of cohesive title or career path. So they even investigated 
10,000 academic job advertisements, and they found that 400 of them were related to software development. And there were 200 names for that same job, roughly. So so how do you search? Identif- if you're searching for a job and you want to do software and research, it's impossible. There are 200 different words for that same role, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, but the need is clearly there, right? There's so much demand for this kind of work, but it, it's not really identified and because it's not ba- it's not necessarily lab based, right? It doesn't. There's not this singular research RSE lab. We have this problem because we have nowhere to go for the kind of help that we need. So enter the RSE movement in the UK. They have a what's called a software sustainability institute there, and eventually this started to expand into other countries including the U.S. So the US, U.S. movement is quite new. So in the U.K., they recognize that if they don't elevate this title, it seems like we're not going to get the quality people and we're not going to be able to retain them, right? So if there's no career path with a name and there's no chance for progressing or advancing, like, I'm going to go to industry. And I think that hurts academic research a lot. But at the same token, it's, and I heard you say this, an individual lab may not need a dedicated software person. I mean, depending on the size of the lab, maybe they do. But sometimes you'll have a handful of projects that come and go, and you need the help of a person that knows how to, to write software, but you don't necessarily need a person dedicated to that task. And so it sounds like the RSE advocacy groups that you talked about in the U.S. and, and abroad are trying to navigate defining what this role is and the best ways to implement it for research to progress. Yeah, and that and that's been really tough because since we're not lab based, we have to prove to the university that we have value to get funded or we have to pull in our own funding. It's it's very similar to a lab in that way, that we're soft-funded and we have to work for that funding. So part of what we're trying to do when we... I want to say there's only like one group. There hasn't been too much success in this so far. As a movement is to establish the case for research software engineers and make sure uh, that we can at least get funded in part by the university. There there hasn't been, but we're, we're definitely working on it. Aside from Purdue, where do RSEs work? Yeah, so RSEs work in a variety of places. Lots of people come in from industry, and there are even RSEs in industry, although uh, we aren't very well connected with them. But aside from uh, lots of major universities as well have research computing, and the RSE groups in them hire people. But the, the second choice is uh, national labs. And national labs are a huge supporter of RSEs and arguably started supporting RSE groups before academia did. So national labs are typically funded by the Department of Energy, which means they're government-funded institutions that aren't universities that employ people to work both on 
basic science initiatives, but also initiatives more relevant to things like national security and nuclear power and, and things like this. So it's sort of uh, a mixed bag. They, they do all different kinds of work, but they employ a lot of research software engineers, and many of the national labs have their own RSE groups. But yeah, there's a lot of, of basic science stuff. It is sort of a cross between industry and academia. So there, you might be kind of assigned to some particular project, but maybe you get 20% to work of, time, of your time to work on your own research. You probably get uh, the, I think the pay is also somewhere in between industry and academia. So it is this kind of interesting hybrid of the two, if you're not decided on, <laughs> on which one that you like better, something else. You mentioned that there are these groups of RSE supporters around the globe, first in the UK, but Belgium and Germany and the Netherlands and Australia and New Zealand and the US. Tell me about some of the things that US RSE is doing to help uh, improve the situation, to, to help train or to hire or retain research software engineers around the country? Right. So first off, we have a pretty successful job board where we are Huge. collecting. Yeah. <laughs> where we are collecting positions and putting them all in one place. We also have a very vibrant community that's really active on that's just a wonderful resource for any question you could possibly have. I noticed some training, uh, some resources and courses that people can take on the website. So basically, software basics or ways to improve your software skills, even as a researcher. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if anyone is interested in this field, like that is the thing to do. There are lots of trainings available. And we do, as a community, uh, we have a ch Slack channel for that to keep those things available and to share what works. There's also the Software Carpentries that is also based in the UK, and they have a lot of trainings, and they're special because they're aimed at researchers, and so it's very, you know, it's, it's targeted at that perspective, which is incredibly helpful, right? It's because it's, it's a totally unique perspective to come at it, at it from the research side and... Uh, then do the research software engineering and to learn those software skills. Yeah. So, so I would say soft RSEs come at this career from sort of two directions. One is like my own story where I come at it. I'd be interested to know how you got to this role because, you know, you could come from the, like you said, from the science side or the software side, but you landed in the middle. So how did you get there? Yeah. So I was always interested in science and I started undergrad and trying like paleontology and astrophysics and the whole thing, but I didn't really want to commit to one. I'm sort of a generalist and, but I landed in biology and I had medical people for parents. And so that whole path was not at all <laughs> uh, appealing to me. And I don't have any academic research people in my family. So I was sort of blind to what that looked like. I didn't know people made any money at it. And my conception of research was that, and I'm sorry for this, 
you get to pipette dilutions in a basement lab with fluorescent lights. You're not, don't be sorry. That's what happens. We did have windows <laughs> in my lab, for, for the record. Oh, that is. That's a look. Thanks, Stefo. <laughs> <laughs> I also worked in some basements, so I'm not going to say it yeah. wasn't, didn't exist. <laughs> but that didn't appeal to me, especially since I, you know, I didn't know what like the research, the positive research side of that looked like. And so I thought maybe I would try engineering because they require you to take science classes, but there's a paid job at the end. <laughs> True. So I, I transferred schools and I took a I think it was a C programming for scientists and gen- engineers. And I had always been kind of a creative person. And even though I had no exposure to coding before, I really fell in love with it. Instead of some people where they just want to, you know, bash their head against the wall because they're working with this like semicolon, there's no semicolon error or something. Yeah, that was frustrating, but it was also super rewarding. I really enjoyed it. And there were, it seemed like there were a thousand ways to program like a few lines of code, which meant, you know, there's debate about how you should do it. So really, it's a kind of an artistic endeavor. And so I knew that that was, I was confident that that's the direction that I wanted to go. And because the class was for scientists and engineers, I had the sense that I could do the science that I was so interested with the software, even though I didn't know what that looked like yet. So I had this conception that I could do science and software, and I thought maybe it would be related to research as well somehow, even maybe in industry, somehow that that was a component. So I started cold emailing different professors, and I was extremely lucky. I got a great research mentor right off the bat who gave me this choice. He's like, I've got projects, like, and at the time I was a math with computer science major. I have this project that's algorithms, and I have this project that is technically game theory, but you get to code and you get to cool. work on this. Yeah, and you get to work on this cool thing called the supercomputer, right? Which, as I said, is a whole bunch of computers strung together. And lots of campuses have these supercomputing resources. And I said, well, I think I like to code. And I didn't really understand that at the time that I was kind of making this choice. There's like the traditional academic math and computer science path. And then there was this research software engineering path. And so if anyone is like me and and comes to this choice and you say, well, you know, I like the research, but I like the software more. That makes me the RSE. It sounds like that offers you the flexibility that you were after in the beginning. I mean, it, it's almost a little bit like a consulting role where this week you could work on paleontology and next week it could be astrophysics and you get to engage with the, the researcher, the expert who wants to go deep in that topic. But you need to learn enough of it to be useful. And so you could learn a, a wide breadth of topics and it could be really exciting if you're the type of person that just wants to accumulate, wants to gather all of those different ideas. Yeah, I'm definitely a generalist. And so that speaks to me. That's definitely one of the reasons why I'm in it. I get to interact with all kinds of sciences, and that feels really meaningful to me. So how did you find out about this role at Purdue? Was it advertised as research software engineer? Or how did you go from from doing some research to ending up as as a RSE? 
Yeah. So the next step for me was that I started looking for jobs. I had not gotten to in this research stuff until like six years into college. I had flipped around a lot. So. That's fine. <laughs> so, People take all different paths as, as we have found. Yeah. And I, and you know, I ended up exactly where I needed to be. And I, uh, I, it was all through networking, right? So my advisor, uh, who I had done all this work for was like, well, you know, if you like to, if you want to continue doing this stuff, here are the people in research computing and research computing is the place that on in a university that typically houses the clusters and the supercomputers, but they also frequently, if they're large enough, they house people like RSE groups. So he forwarded me, to the RSE group, they gave me a little internship, and that turned into a job, <laughs> and awesome. the rest is history. <laughs> oh, that's great. What a great story, and and I think plenty of people listening will hear elements of themselves, they'll hear little hints of like, oh, I do like writing code that is part of my, my research, but I wish that I could change topics periodically. Like I was the kind of person that I was going so deep on one amino acid that I would have <laughs> would have killed to do something else and to, and to learn some other topic. So I think there's plenty of people out there that want to have that experience of, and I love how you said it, the, the artful craft of writing software. Yeah, and there's downsides to this too, right? So one of the consequences of pulling in our own funding as a group is that we have, like, you know, I don't know, 12 grants proposals on the table at any wow. time as a group, and everyone is working on, like, three projects. <laughs> so that requires a lot of context switching, and it is terribly interesting, but it's also a skill to maintain that level of context switching and something that, you know, me and probably lots of people in the field have had to work on. Yeah, so if your group were fully funded from whatever source, maybe people recognize the, the value of it, you probably wouldn't have to do that context switching. But because of the state of research software engineering today, you're in this transitionary period where it's not the de facto standard for how research gets done. And so you're having to, what we call a scrappy, right? This is the word that they use in startups. You, you make it work. And someday somebody will benefit from all of that work that you've done. Yeah, so I have two responses to this. One is that if you are this kind of person that likes to deep dive and doesn't want to do the context switching, I believe there's also opportunities available. It, you don't just have to work in an RSE group. You can also work directly for a lab, and we post those positions on our job board as well. So I think there's opportunities both ways. My second thought was that if we do eventually have funding, we can take a step back and not only can we do a better job at less things, but we can even start to research our own software, right? And we can improve our own craft instead of, you know, constantly piecemealing our research efforts. That's huge. And, and that's a big focus of software development. If there is reusable code, then great. More everybody that needs a user interface could just modify something that you've worked on for another group. And so it takes much less time to maintain it. It's much easier. Yeah. So I think, yeah, open source software is certainly 
incredibly valuable in that unlike all these other projects done by a single lab where the code just dies at the end, in an open source community where there's many research groups working on you know, similar aims that are all contributing to the same package, that software lives on and it has, you know, something much very similar to reviewers, right? There's always people using the software, looking for bugs, fixing issues. And when you have that open source community, the value of the software just skyrockets. That's a great point. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, more more transparency, more reusability, and and I just love the idea of my project as a graduate student living on beyond me and going on to make discoveries that I didn't think about in another lab, in another field even. I think that could be really inspiring for people. If somebody listening thinks this sounds even remotely interesting and they, they maybe they're not ready, they're not a person who has enough software experience, or maybe they're a software person that doesn't have research experience, how can they get involved with USRSE or one of the ones in other countries? Yeah, so for USRSE, there's a website, us-rse.org. And so if you go to that website, you can sign up to be a member. And you absolutely do not have to be a research software engineer. Actually, that does bring up the point. So whether you consider yourself an RSE or not, please sign up. You, you might consider yourself an ally or you might have some imposter syndrome about the fact that you, you are an RSE. The field of RSEs is just so wide and everyone does so many things that it's really quite hard to come up with a definition that you know includes everyone in a meaningful way. But if you do this kind of work and or, you know, you enjoy the software, join the community, certainly work on your software skills. I would say that's the number one qualification for getting a job of this kind. But at the end of the day, you're going to learn a lot just by being there, right? So you don't have to uh, come in with every qualification in the world. If you did research and you did a little software with your research, that is more than enough grounds to join the group and try to start a career that way. I'll, I'll echo that. I've been writing software for years and years, and I still feel like I am at the tiniest beginning of what other people seem to know. And so it doesn't matter how long you've done it, you're going to probably feel that way. So jump in. And I just love to hear about communities that do support each other like that. I think software engineers are, they're good people. They're interested in solving problems. And in some of the best groups I've been in, they're really willing to train, to, to spend the time to review code, to give you tips, to point you to articles and, and things that you didn't know about. So I love to hear about that. I'll be signing up because I do consider myself an ally. I think this is going to be really cool. Great. If, if listeners want to get in touch with you, do you have social media accounts or a way that they can contact you to ask about your journey? Sure. My Twitter handle is catch underscore me underscore coding. <laughs> So you can find me on Twitter or you can email me at brewer36 at purdue.edu. Awesome. And we will post those links in our show notes and also the links to USRSE. Thank you so much, Nicole, for taking the time. This has been awesome. Yeah, I'm delighted, Daniel. Thank you. 
All right, Dan, thanks for doing that interview. I was not familiar with research software engineers, but now I am. And this might be a really interesting career path for a lot of people out there. Yeah, I think so. It may be the one way that I get back into academia, Josh. Uh, (laughs) This would be the only way you'd drag me. Those are words I never thought I would hear. Um, It made me think of, Josh, you remember a few years ago, uh, you were working on a paper assessing graduate student success. And the way you decided to measure that was, uh, one of the ways was to look at the number of authorships that that student had with their PI. And that involved a ton of typing and clicking in PubMed. And so you and I worked together and I wrote a little script to query PubMed and just download, you know, take a spreadsheet of names and query PubMed for each one individually and then download the papers so that you would have an automated way to find out how many papers these students had published. And what was interesting about that was it worked, but then other people at other universities wanted it. And I wasn't there or, or really ready, didn't have the time to maintain it. And so when they wanted it, you try, you had to like hold their hand to get them to install everything correctly and try to get them to run the script. And you might ask me to make modifications or you were making modifications, but it wasn't built to spread around. It was useful to more than one lab or group, but it wasn't built to support that. And so uh, it, it was just like an example to me of where a research software engineer or at least some thinking around how do we maintain this over time when the person who wrote it leaves. Uh, I, I just think there's a, a great use case there. You know, one thing I wondered was, do you feel like there are lessons that are learned from projects that people work on that involve code that, that sort of prevent those that work from leaving with them, uh, from sort of dying on the vine once they move on to something else? Do you think there are lessons here that could be applied to non-coding research in the lab? Because I can certainly remember experiences in the lab where even non-code types of research would really walk out, that expertise and that knowledge would walk out the door with a person when they left. You're so right. Yeah, anybody who has tried to read someone else's lab notebook has been down that road. Joe knew how to do this technique but he graduated three years ago, and now I'm combing through these, you know, wrinkled pages that have been, you know, wet with PBS and whatever. Uh, his handwriting is smeared, but I can't get the experiment to work the way he made it work. And why is that? And he's he's moved on. He's gone. So I think what you're saying, Josh, is, is true. The way we capture knowledge is not always designed for the long term. Yeah, Dan, you mentioned a comment that I've not heard you make before which was this is maybe the one type of career that would make you even consider going back to academia. So what is it about this that sounds appealing to you? Um, I I think this is more in line with my motivated abilities, which everybody listening to the podcast hopefully has heard our episode on motivated abilities. Um, The things that I enjoy doing are more with data management. And so I'm still fascinated by science. I, I, I chose to go to graduate school because I loved the discovery and I loved uh, biology and the things you could do, the, the applications of it. I just didn't love pipetting liquids back and forth and having cells die and all of those things. So this would be a way to be adjacent to that discovery without being the one having to be responsible for a mouse colony, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And I don't think we give enough attention to careers like this one 
that are research-supporting careers, research-adjacent careers that do actually exist in, in academia, I think it's pretty common for a lot of people that they get through graduate school or maybe they're even in a postdoc and they realize, like, you know, I don't want to lead a lab. Like, I don't want to be a lab right. head. I kind of like research. There are things about research I like, but I don't think we do a good job of telling people about those other ways they might be able to stay involved in research, even in an academic setting that's not running your own lab, being solely responsible for grants, bringing in funding and you know managing a research group. Because um, those are actually very different skills and interests and motivated abilities than even directly doing research. You're so right. I mean, your previous role was research adjacent, but you were not pipetting liquids. That's really true, Dan. And one thing that surprised me listening to this interview, I knew you were talking to Nicole and I knew Nicole was involved in in coding and, and software, which is very much outside of the type of work and experiences that I've had. But one thing that I really connected with that she was talking about was this ability in her role to be involved with a lot of different types of research, a lot of different types of science. And one thing I really loved about being a program director, which is obviously very different than, than Nicole's being a software research engineer, but I never really connected with diving really deep into individual research questions. That's one of the things that made me question my own desire at the time to become a PI of a lab. But what I really loved being a program director was I worked with lots of different students who were doing lots of different science. I got to learn a little bit about a lot of different things going on in a more general sense. And that really fueled me. That really kept me, actually, I was probably even more interested and engaged in science in that role than I was when I was directly diving deep into science. And I heard Nicole discuss um, some of those similar themes with her own enjoyment of her job. Yeah, I can see you loving that. You 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 probably got into this space because you loved learning and learning about a lot of different topics. I could see you being inspired by the different ideas and then you know, wanting to learn that first couple of of feet of depth and then dig another hole, right? Uh not going down to the the core of the thing. So, if that sounds like people listening, if if that sounds like your personality, don't walk out of science. Uh, look for some of these adjacent careers that let you not dabble, but let you experience multiple aspects of of different people's research. You know, you know, Dan. I was also thinking about a listener email that we answered a couple episodes ago. It was about a, a student who who mentioned they really like to help people, and I think there's a lot of us out there who enjoy helping people, and sometimes a subset of those people can get drawn into science, maybe even biomedical science, because you have this thought like, okay, here's these afflictions that people deal with, maybe a health problem. So I'm going to do research so I can help people. But the realities of day-to-day research, especially basic science, you don't necessarily get that payoff like you're directly helping right. other human beings on a day-to-day basis. But this, the the work that Nicole is doing, whether you're working as a, as a research software engineer or working in some sort of other core type facility where you're interfacing with other researchers to help them get their work done. It really is kind of a service oriented way to be part of science. You get to really help lots of different people get their own science done. And I could see how 
that might give me or might give you a really good feeling at the end of the day, having people who come in with a problem that they're trying to solve and you help equip them with the tools or break loose a barrier that helps them make progress on their own project. And I can see how a lot of people uh, would really enjoy that as part of a career. Absolutely. So there are a couple of other things I wanted to just mention, Josh. I did join USRSE, the United States Research Software Engineer Society, uh, totally free. I consider myself an ally now. And they have a Slack channel. They do events. There's the job board. So check that out for sure if you even are remotely interested in this career. Um, and the other thing that Nicole mentioned was software carpentry. Uh, if you go to software-carpentry.org, and I'll put this in the show notes, uh, they have online lessons and they have regional workshops to teach researchers how to use some basic coding tools. So things like how to run a program, how to write a Python script, things like that. So if, if you really want to put your toe into this water, that'd be a great place to have somebody meet you where you are in terms of, uh, I'm a researcher, but I want to learn how to write or manage software. All right, Dan. Well, this was really great. I always love learning about careers that are out there that our listeners maybe haven't even thought about that might be a great fit for them. So hopefully a few people listening out there, maybe this is something new for you to think about doing with your career. You know somebody else who might connect with this type of work. This whole podcast is just basically career counseling and therapy for me, Josh. If that is not clear by this point, you're not paying attention. All right, Dan. Well, this was a great topic. If anyone out there, you have a question or a topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love your feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money to celebrate all of the major and minor holidays. And square roots. <laughs> square roots. Thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons. All right, Dan, it's been a pleasure, as always. I'm busy. I'm calculating the square root of four so we can establish a holiday. <laughs> square root of four is two, Dan. Nope, can't do it. I'm, i got to do the math, Josh. <laughs> All right, Dan, well, while you're working on that, we will figure out something to talk about when we tune back in next time. We'll see you the next time. 